Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. This time I spoke to a man who's best known as a teacher. Mark W. Travis has given many directing workshops all over the world. He's taught at film schools in America, Germany, Ireland and other countries. He's directed numerous stage productions, including the original A Bronx Tale, which was later turned into a theatrical feature with Robert De Niro. He's worked as a consultant and he's written several notable books on directing, including The Director's Journey and Directing Feature Films. The reason I wanted to talk to Mark Travis, however, was that back in the late 80s, he directed a feature film called Going Under, starring Bill Pullman, a submarine comedy that combines slapstick, political satire, wacky humor, and a ton of absurd ideas in the vein of the Zucker-Abraham-Zucker movies. The film came out in 1990 and, if you excuse the pun, didn't make a lot of waves, but it remains one of my favorite films and I've watched it dozens of times. So I interviewed Mark to learn more about the film, which, as it turns out, had a lot of behind-the-scenes drama in post-production. And the finished film isn't what Mark had originally intended it to be. So here's Talking Pictures with director Mark W. Travis. My first question is, well, what's the first thing, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of going under? Oh, well, the first thing I think of is disaster. Really? Oh, yeah. But um, that's because there were a lot of uh, political and creative disasters that happened during the movie. Mm -hmm. Political By political, I mean within, within a studio system. Uh-huh. <clears throat> because the movie you see is not the movie I made. Uh-huh. And the movie I made was much better. So you know, that, that's the first thing I think about because it was it was a movie that got. I mean, it, it, the, the movie was doing fine. It got caught in a political. It became a political football at Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. And not that I had anything to do with it, but the powers of be, executive directors and um, other people. At Warner Brothers were using it to their own uh, personal purposes mm -hmm. and so and that was a very very um, painful journey for me this was all during post-production mm -hmm. so that's when you ask what's <clears throat> the first thing I think about that's what I think about in fact to tell you the truth Christian it's very hard for me to watch the movie because I know what it was uh -huh. um, and um, so it's hard for me to s see scenes and go, oh, yeah, but the way we had that scene or the way we had that moment or the way we had those characters was so different than the way it is now, so that's painful, too. Was the movie longer in, in your version? No, no, not longer. Just different. Uh huh. So um, the studio re-edited the movie. Yeah, well, what, what happened was um, when Warner Brothers became interested in the movie... Mm -hmm. At first, they were interested as what's called a negative pickup. I don't know if you know what that is, but a negative pickup means they would guarantee us, because we were producing it, they would guarantee uh -huh. us they would buy the movie uh -huh. and distribute it for a certain amount of money after we make it. Mm -hmm. And with a negative, let's, let's say they say $5 million or something like that. 
negative pickup for five million, which means with that negative pickup, you can go to the bank and borrow five million dollars, mm-hmm. just like that, easy. And um, that's the way it started. And then Warner Brothers got more and more excited about the movie, and then decided no, they didn't want to do a negative pickup; they wanted to produce it themselves. Mm-hmm. And then the budget tripled immediately. Uh, because as soon as Warner Brothers is producing something, everybody's price goes up. What was so, the budget on the picture? It's it started out at around three million and ended up around ten million. Oh wow! Yeah, and it was the same movie. The movie didn't change at all. Uh-huh. Uh, the so it went up to about ten million, which means we had more money, but means there were more people involved on the payroll than we really needed. And things were more expensive, but that that but that was okay. Mm-hmm. Then um, the two writers of it wanted to be producers on it, and so Warner Brothers said, "Okay, you can be producer." And these are two writers who had never produced anything, so they didn't really know what it meant to be a producer. Uh-huh. And then Warner Brothers placed another producer on the project, who was one of their people, and. What I didn't know is this was a producer that was had been working for Warner Brothers for a long time, but then at this point he was on his way out. They were thinking of getting rid of him, uh-huh. so they gave him one last project to see if he could prove himself as a producer. Well, I didn't know that. I just knew we had a producer, so he was being tested with this project. Then uh-huh. when it came into post production, there were huge disagreements between me. And pretty much all the producers um, on how the film should be cut together, mm-hmm. and so I never really got to finish my cut because then the producers stepped in and the producers started making deals with the studio without telling me. Oh, and they said, "Oh well, don't worry about it. We'll recut it." And the film was doing well; it was doing very well. It was doing well in previews and everything, but then Warner Brothers somehow got it into their head that this was a movie for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, which it's not. It's a movie for adults. I mean, it's all adult humor. It's not children's humor at all. And they decided it should be for children. So the very first preview we did that was run by Warner Brothers, um, it was all children in the audience. And I remember walking into the theater to see... This was Still, the film wasn't finished, but it was finished enough to preview it. And I remember walking into the theater and seeing all these children. I going, "My God, this is insane!" And most of them were teenagers and younger, uh-huh. and they didn't get it. They didn't understand the movie at all. The parents that were with them understood it, <laughs> but the children didn't. And I remember one horrible moment when I was talking to one of the executives from Warner Brothers. Not one of the producers, just an executive from Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. So he's above the producers. And I said, he's, and he told me, he says, Mark, this, this it's a disaster. This preview's a disaster. I said, well, of course it is. I said, this is the wrong audience. Mm. And we had another pre- preview coming up, I think three or four days later, for a different audience. I said, well, just wait till you see it in front of, you know, with the right audience. I said, this is the wrong audience. And he said, He said, no, this is the right audience. We will make it work for them. Uh, And that was the beginning of the end. So um, from that point on, the 
studio and the, some of the producers that were on the film were working together behind my back to try to make it work for children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. While I was trying to make it work the way it was written. Mm -hmm. So it ended up somewhere halfway in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, you can still sense that in the, in the finished film because there's, there's still traces of some political satire and very... Yeah. Like, yep. like almost strange love elements with mm -hmm. like the Secretary of Defense, uh, Mr. Neighbor, this this kind of Mr. Rogers guy who doesn't have a clue about what's going on, um, right. and, and Admiral Malice just pocketing all this money into his own private bank account. Yeah, um, and I mean, I, even Christian, yeah. even if you look at the names of some of the characters, like Admiral Malice uh, and General, you know, General Confusion and stuff like that. Children don't understand the, that humor. Yeah, they just go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but the adults would get it. It's you're right. It's very, um, it's very subtle humor. It's more along the lines of Airplane or Brazil or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very political. It was even more political than it is now. Very political, and that's why. Yeah, Doctor Strangelove is a great example. Um, one of my favorite films. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, because of the humor in there, that's also very cutting humor, and and also very political. Mm -hmm. But so, getting back to when you say, "What do I think of the film?" When I think about it now, it's hard. <laughs> that's why it's hard for me to watch it because oh. I know it's like there's there's one scene where he's with this psychiatrist, and he there's a flashback in that scene about the bongo, the, yeah. the submarine that they. Well, that whole flashback was not. That's not. That whole scene, it's a huge scene that we shot, mm -hmm. with the, uh, the beaching of the submarine. It was a great scene. That was supposed to open the entire movie. Mm -hmm. The whole idea was that you open the movie just like you open a James Bond movie, where you see your hero on his last mission. But our hero is, oh. you know, claustrophobic and afraid of water, <laughs> and it's a disaster. So that that was the whole idea was to open it. So and that was the way to introduce Biff Banner. Uh huh. And we had it all cut together, and it worked. It worked great. And um, I even put in uh, the the spake Zarathustra in the beginning, which oh, was sort of it's two thousand one and all that. Just you know, I just I would, and people said, "Well, you can't. You're using music that was used in another film." I said, "Yes, that's there's a <laughs> to that." <laughs> you know, I, I kept using music from other films, you know, just to make a reference to other films. And I, I said, well, why would you do that? And I, so a lot of people just didn't understand my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. But that opening sequence was fantastic. And it ends up with Biff Banner being, you know, hauled out of the submarine by a crane because he won't let go of the um, uh, the periscope. Uh -huh. You know, and, and, and it's just silly and stupid. But Then they decided to make that a flashback in the middle of the, you know, about a third of the way through the movie, or, you know, at the earlier, well, not that far, but, and it just, I just look at that and go, <laughs> so it pains me. It pains me because I knew what we had. I can, yeah, I can understand that. Even though, I mean, I didn't know that it was supposed to be at the beginning of the movie. And I always thought it was a nice joke when he, you know, he tells the psychiatrist, he says, well, that was my first command, and everything mm -hmm. went great. And then you have this cut, and you see yeah. chaos on the bridge, and somebody says, we're, we're about to crash. Um, mm -hmm. and, and he says in the voice of a, well, not that great. Um, yeah. I always thought it was a nice joke, but, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, 
never thought about the fact whether it was intended to be like that or not. Yeah. No, that was not that was not the intention. That was one of the producers had this crazy again, these producers, these two writer producers, really didn't know I mean, they'd never made a film before. Mm -hmm. So know much about producing or editing, you know, the whole editing process. And ironically, <clears throat> this is the political part, which I found out after the film was over, these producers were making deals with the studio mm -hmm. to get um, another project going. And part of that deal was that they would take over this project. Oh, I see. So it was all self-serving. And then there's another producer who we learned later was actually stole about fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars out of the budget to buy so he could buy a ranch. Oh wow! Yeah. So there, there was a lot of messy stuff going on. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Um, well, they, they, both of the writers, I think, never made another movie. I think Randolph Davis has a credit on the seventh Police Academy movie. Um, as a co-writer, but yeah, the other one—I mean, at least w from what I see on IMDb—and uh, I tried to Google him, and yeah. um, I have no idea where he ended up. I, d I don't know. I have no idea. I, no, neither of them have made a movie since. Um, I mean, the sad thing is they were in a good position to set themselves up to you know, to yeah. make the movie, and you know, the studio, the people in the studio are not stupid. You know, they start making <clears throat> making these deals with young producers like that. They they know what the producers are doing. The producers are trying to leverage one film against the other, and studios don't really like that. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a lot of talk, and then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And the one producer that was on it that was from Warner Brothers, when this film was over, he was fired. Oh, I mean, it was it was the end was sort of a disaster. You no. Know? So did not, you, not, not a happy experience at all. Well, well, that kind of takes care of the question whether it was fun to shoot the movie. <laughs> it would, no, well, no, it was. We had a great time shooting it. I'll tell you, one, one thing that happened, uh, the good thing is that while we were shooting it, the studio pretty much left us alone, except, some, except for some inside stuff that the producers were doing. But pretty much left, or left me alone. Uh -huh. I, I could do whatever I wanted to do which was nice. And we had a great time mm -hmm. shooting the film. Mm -hmm. And I would hear, kept, I kept hearing from producers and stuff of other films that were being done at Warner Brothers, and they, some of, the, some of them would go in and watch the dailies for my film. They, they said, we love it. We, we go in and watch the dailies all the time because it's such goofy, silly stuff you're doing. Uh -huh. So while we were shooting, everything was great. There was no problems. There was no problem. We were shooting. Everything was great. Everything looked great. Everybody was happy. Hmm. And it was once we hit post-production that things started going badly. Yeah, that must must really have hurt. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Huh. So um, how did you get involved with the project in the first place? Well, one of <coughs> uh, a good friend of mine who was actually in the film... Uh, Dennis Redfield, who plays Turbo, uh -huh. he knew these two writers. Somehow he had become connected with them, and he knew about the project. And he recommended me to them. 
Because mm-hmm. you know, Dennis and I had worked on several projects together over many years. So that's how I met them. And then also, at the same time, I had a play that was running that I had developed and directed, a one-man show mm-hmm. uh, called A Bronx Tale, which eventually became the movie A Bronx Tale. Oh. But this, this play that was so was really, really popular. Um, it was like sold out for months and months. And the studios were all um, scrambling to try to buy the rights to the play to make a movie. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Chaz, Palmetari, and myself, Ch- Chaz is the actor-writer in the play, and I was the developer-director. Mm-hmm. And it's so it was his story. So he and I decided to see how long we could hold out without selling it to the studios to see if we could get the price up. And we brought in another producer who helped us, you know, finance the play, and we took it to New York and blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. Point is that during that period of time, if you have, if you are attached to a piece of property that the studios want, you can pick up the phone and probably get into any studio you want immediately. Uh-huh. So I used that, and I would just pick up the phone and say, you know, my name's Mark Travis, I'm with the Bronx Tale. Oh, yeah, Mark, hey, how are you? You know, <laughs> fine, can, you know, could I have a meeting with so-and-so? It's not about a Bronx Tale, it's about another project. And I would go, of course you can. So, hold on one second. Okay, sorry about that. So, no problem. Yeah, so I, I would just call the studios and I could get in. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and half of the conversation would be about a Bronx tale and how's it going and what are you going to do and, that, you know. But that that was just an easy entry. So mm-hmm. that's that's how we got into Warner's and a lot of other studios. And Warner's was seemed the most enthusiastic about going under. It was called Dive at that point. Oh, Okay. <laughs> which is a better title. But the reason they had to change the title, it was Dive with a big exclamation point. The reason they had to change it is because Steven Spielberg was opening a restaurant called Dive. Oh, I see. And they didn't want to make a movie that would support his restaurant. So <laughs> Anyway, so that that's how I <clears throat> we got it into the studios. And eventually Bronx Tale was sold to Universal and Tribeca. But that's how it got set up. Mm-hmm. Rather, rather easily is because of other issues. And did you do a lot of work on the script with the two writers, or was the screenplay I, more or less finished when you got it? The screenplay was more or less finished. We did a lot of work, and to tell you the truth, Christian, I know now we should have done a lot more. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's hard to tell if I'm looking just looking at the film, but it's the... I mean, my, my whole focus is on on story and, and making sure and story characters and character relationships mm-hmm. and the writer's focus was more on jokes they would just love, love to write jokes and I would say that's a great joke but if it doesn't if it's not connected with a story you know or if it's not moving the story forward it's just a joke you know and mm-hmm. so that was that was some of the problems we had We but we did while we you know while it was in development at Warner Brothers we did oh, maybe three or four rewrites I think And knowing what I know now, many, many years later, because I know a lot more about screenwriting and storytelling and all that, 
And I look at it and say, oh, we could have done so much better if we had spent more time uh, on the script. Uh-huh. It could have been better. It could have been funnier. could have been... And it could have been more political and more cutting. And... Um, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, what about a lot of the jokes, like the, the, the visual gags and, and the production design gags? Uh, were those in the script or did they develop on set? Well, you'd have to tell me which ones. Well, basically a lot of stuff. Like um, the seal of approval, which is behind uh, the secretary neighbors. Um, yeah. And wall. Or... Um, The, the, the logo of Wedgwood Industries, National Defense at Your Expense, um, yeah. the kind of stuff which where, they, where they're about to hit the, the iceberg and they just sort of uh, jump over it and then they, they go down it like in a sleigh, sleigh ride and, and yeah. they suddenly all wear wool hats and everything yeah. uh, with snow uh, falling on the bridge. Yeah, I would say, you know, a lot of that was in the script. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that was the whole general idea of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of, you know, wacky, really, really wacky humor. And during the rewrites, a lot of these things got developed more. If you look at even Wedgwood, Wedgwood's, I forget the name of the company, but it's WRT. Mm-hmm. That's TRW backwards. And TRW at that time was a massive technology industry. Oh, okay. I didn't get that. And there are a lot of things in there that you may not get. They're, they're very, very, very subtle things. But a, lo- a lot of a lot of that humor uh, was, you know, that, that was definitely in the script. Mm-hmm. What about the casting process? Um, how did all the actors come on board? Were there other choices for the lead part? How did Bill Pullman get involved? Well, Bill Pullman is an actor that I knew Uh, I didn't know him well because uh-huh. uh, he's a good friend now. But <clears throat> I'd seen a lot of his work both on stage and in film. So we went after him and got him. We had trouble casting the female lead because a lot of leading actresses didn't want to do it. They, I, I think they felt afraid of it because of the humor and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, Ned Beatty was someone that I... Also knew about, but was not didn't really know that well. And but I knew he would be perfect for what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Roddy McDowell was when we came up with the idea of secretary neighbor and who could play it. Immediately, I thought of Roddy McDowell, and I had no connection with him whatsoever. Uh-huh. But we went after him, and he just loved the the crazy idea of secretary neighbor. And the politics of that. And they're all fantastic to work with. A lot of the other characters are down on a lower level, a lot of those are my friends. Uh-huh. Uh, people that I've known because I've worked so long in film and television, mostly in theater. And so I brought in a lot of my friends. Uh, so I would have friends on the set. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Michael Winslow? Was he the studio's idea? Uh, he may have been, or one of the producers, and I like the idea because of his verbal ability. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, any any time I could get somebody wacky in there, um, I, th- I think that was that was a studio idea. Uh-huh. Another studio uh-huh. idea that they had was 
I remember one day I got a call from the studio, and it, the call literally, Christian, went like this. It was one of the executives, and I said, yeah? And he says, Don Rickles. And I go, well, yeah, what about him? He's in your movie. I go, what? Don Rickles is in your movie. And I said, well, what? Now, the only part he could have done probably was Ned Beatty's part, uh-huh. uh, General Malice. And I said, and I was already cast. And I go, well, what part? I don't know. He's in your movie. <laughs> and it took me about a week to get him out of the movie because there was no place for him. Yeah. But this, what the studio would do many times, they would just throw some comic or comedian at me and say, put him in the movie. And they didn't have an idea of you know, what part or anything. They just wanted these names in the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you're probably aware of the fact that the movie is marketed in Germany as... Um, a sort of police academy follow-up. Um, yeah. It's called yep. U-Boat Academy. Right. Uh, and, and that's why I was asking about Michael Winslow, because he's sort of the tie-in to the police academy movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hmm. Strange. So, um, uh, what about the process of, of actually shooting the film? Did you rehearse uh, a lot uh, with all of the actors? Yeah, I, yeah, because my whole background is theater. I, I do rehearse a lot. And we only had about a week of rehearsal before we started shooting, uh-huh. which is not a lot for me. I'd rather have two or three weeks. But I think we had about a week, and we rehearsed a lot during that week. And then I would rehearse a lot on the set, too. Uh, because of the theater, my theater background, I can rehearse very fast. I can do it. I could take 10 minutes and get a rehearsal on it. Mm-hmm. But, but it needed it needed that kind of rehearsal to because of the rhythm, the rhythms and the humor and, and just the attitude, the general attitude. Mm-hmm. And most of, most of the cast comes out of theater. I mean, Bill Pullman's out of theater. Wendy Schall's out of theater. All of them have worked in theater, which means they, they know how to rehearse mm-hmm. and they can hold on to an idea for a long time or, you know, they hold... They can retain the feeling of a rhythm or a tone, even for a whole movie, mm-hmm. uh, because of the theater background. Did you allow the actors to improvise on the scenes? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would. Depends on the scene. Sometimes I would. <coughs> Some of the scenes are improvised. For example? And, well, there was a, there, there's a whole sequence, and I, I can't remember what, what's left of it. There was one time we were sitting on the set, We were shooting something, and I came up with an idea. And I was with Ned Beatty and um, Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. And Roddy McDowell being British, obviously, you know, we were just talking. <laughs> he was saying he really doesn't understand football. And it's the whole sequence when they're watching the football thing uh-huh. on the screen. There's the whole sequence where Joe Namath says, you know, punt. Mm-hmm. And Roddy actually said to me, what's a punt? What is it? <laughs> and Ned Beatty was there when I was explaining it. And I said, okay, stop, stop, stop. And they said, what? And I said, get the cameras here quickly. <laughs> quickly. And we filmed this whole conversation between the two, which was totally improvised. What's a punt? Mm-hmm. And, and why do that? And that doesn't make sense. And, and Ned Beatty's trying to explain. But to me, to me, those are the kind of things that I would have loved to have done more of, is to find those moments of humor between the actors where they could improvise um, 
and we did it. You know, as much as I could, I would do that, and without you know going over budget or getting or getting way off the script. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But I wish I wish we had done more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed with a lot of the a lot of the scenes, the way you frame them, you often have several actors in one frame, so you can get a feel of their interaction. Yep. It gives it a very lively feeling, and um, that's why I was asking about improvisation because some of the the interactions kind of felt like they were made up on the spot. Uh, like yeah. When when uh, Bill Pullman and and Wendy Shaw they have these these ridiculous caps. Um, yeah. With, with, with a long. With a long visor. Yeah, exactly. And they they try to to each put theirs on top of the others. Uh, and, yeah. and keep doing that, and then hers yeah. sort of gets stuck, and she she gets angry and and just removes the cap. And yeah. I thought, well, that that wasn't planned. That's something that was made up in the moment, and it feels great. I think that's that's yeah. the kind of thing that makes it feel real. That, that was actually rehearsed. Really? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was rehearsed, but just 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 to work out sort of the logistics of it. Um, but then it's rehearsed enough that we can let it go loose and let them improvise within the rehearsal, so it has that. So it looks totally improvised um, because that, that's what I want. I don't want it to look rehearsed at all. And the other thing you said about the framing of holding a lot of people in the frame, if you hold, if you have several people in the frame, then you there's two things that, that happen. One is the audience is immediately aware, as long as you're not doing a lot of cutting, that this thing is playing in real time and you're really watching them more like a play. You're watching them play with each other. Mm-hmm. And, and also you can allow them to overlap, which I like. I like almost everything I do, this overlapping dialogue. And, you know, I like the dialogue to get messy. Like uh-huh. it doesn't, you know, just like you and I, even in this conversation, interrupt each other and overlap each other. That's that's the way people talk mm-hmm. and And I like that a lot. So that's that's another reason for several people in the frame, so you can really allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. But even even now, when I shoot things, I even if it's just one person in the frame, there's still overlapping. Um, but that's because we have better recording equipment. We can isol- isolate dialogue much more easily than we could before. There are a couple of nice long shots in there, which which don't really draw attention to themselves. But um, <clears throat> like when when Biff Banner enters uh, the U-boat and then meets the crew, there's yeah. a lot of stuff which is just one long take uh, or yeah. one long shot. And um, I always like those those th- those kinds of scenes where you get a feeling that that events unfurl I- in real time and um, you see the real interaction of the people. So. Yeah, I think that that kind of really helps the movie. Um, so, do you have a DVD of this movie or a videotape? Uh, I have a, a VHS tape. Yeah, it did come out on DVD in Germany with only the German audio track on it. Yeah, um, and I think it's out of print now. Probably, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm not aware of any other sort of release, um, like like an international release of the movie. Yeah. It will always remain an obscure movie. <clears throat> well, it's very sad, actually. I know. <laughs> I, I think that even that, even when you tell me that it was, it could have been much better. Actually, 
I still think it's a, a movie with a lot of good stuff in it. And, Thank you. Um, it's still something that's very funny. It's, it's just my kind of humor, I guess. Um, uh, I, I like the, the kind of absurd humor, which you know is actually very creative in how it's done. Um, was there anything that you you wanted to do but couldn't uh, because of budget or time? Well, I was going to say no, but that's not true. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of things, a lot of things I couldn't do because of budget, because I would come up with these visual, I visual, especially visual jokes and visual ideas. And there was there was one scene I forget which scene it was that takes place on this substandard. It was a meeting. Mm -hmm. I remember reading the scene. I go, oh, I want to stage this like the Last Supper. I had this whole plan on how I would have everybody behind a table just like The Last Supper with Biff Banner right where Christ is. I was even going to have moments of fr of a freeze frame and it, that would actually replicate The Last Supper, uh -huh. which was a great idea. <coughs> But the cost of building that set, <coughs> just that scene, somehow became prohibitive, so I couldn't do it. Mm, I see. Yeah, so, so there were things like that. Lots of times I'd come up with visual ideas um, and visual jokes that were just too expensive, way too expensive. Mm -hmm. We Because the budget wasn't that big. It's a very small, tiny budget. Mm -hmm. And we had all the you know, things with the harpoons and the whales and all of that. And uh, I wanted much better um, miniature work than we got. The miniature, I was never happy with the miniature work, mm -hmm. uh, um, the substandard and all that. But this is what frustrated me when I I kept getting told, we don't have the money, we don't have the money, and then I find out one producer was stealing money from the budget, you know. Yeah. And, he's the, and he was the one that was telling me, we have to cut sets, you know, we, get, we have too many sets, we have, to, we have to get rid of a couple of sets. And then I realized he got, he got rid of some of the money anyway. Hmm. So yeah, there, there were things, but you know, basically, 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 it's a performance piece. So even though there are a lot of visual jokes in it, uh, it's performance, and performances are not expensive. That's mm -hmm. you know, as I said before, I wish we had spent more time on the script because I think we could have done a lot better. But you know, the, the biggest frustration was uh, not being allowed to finish it. Mm -hmm. I mean, finish at a point and. At one point, deep into post-production, I'm looking at the film and I'm going, you know, there are too many things that are not making sense at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that the audience is scrambling, I, I, I fear, scrambling for what what's really going on here. And I do know, I know enough about filmmaking to know one solution to that problem in any film mm -hmm. uh, Is narration. Mm -hmm. You just have you have a, a piece of narration, and it's done all the time. American Beauty did it, you know, and mm -hmm. and that won an Academy Award. So, and I came up with this great idea, and I wrote it too. Of uh, the film is narrated by Roddy McDowell's character, uh -huh. and he's telling the story of Biff Banner and the Substandard. Very much like Miss, Mr. Neighbors would tell it to children. And it was like, once upon a time, there was, a, <laughs> there was this wonderful captain that he had a problem. <laughs> it was written sort of like that. And I wrote this whole narration that I wanted to lay, you know, use very sparingly, but, you know, at the beginning and at the end of the film. 
And I thought, this was great. And I showed it to the editors, and they get, everybody got excited about it. Mm-hmm. The studio went, no, no, that's it. Hmm. We're going to finish the picture the way we want to. We're not doing it anymore. Hmm. And they, did, they didn't even want to pay Rodney McDowell to, for a day to come in and record the narration. No. So, I mean, that was frustrating because there was a moment that suddenly I thought, now I can now I can bring it to another level because and I thought it would I thought the studio would be happy because it his tone and his voice would appeal to children. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? Or the child within all of us, you know, yeah. Yeah. and would and would give it a special the whole thing a very special tone. And his character was perfect for this uh-huh. because he was really an observer to the chaos and a naive observer. Yeah. Uh, so it's. Um, but they didn't, you know, I fought and fought and fought for it. And they go, no, 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 we're finishing it. And the sad thing I was told, now this is much later, Christian. It was maybe months after it was done. Uh-huh. And I was talking to a lot of my other friends about it because they were all concerned about what's going on. They knew what was going on while I was making it. And then one of them said to me, you know, the biggest problem, Mark? I go, no. They said, you were at the wrong studio. Hmm. If you had been at Disney, Disney is known for hanging in with a film until they, they can make it the best it could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Warner Brothers is known for finishing it up quickly to try to save money and just put it out there and then move on. Uh-huh. They said if you'd been at Disney, you would have gotten the film you wanted. Hmm. Uh, so, but that's you know that's hindsight. I go, oh, okay, that's great. That doesn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an education. Mm-hmm. Definitely an education. So would you like to, I don't know, if you had the chance, would you like to revisit the film and cut it together the way you wanted to do it? And, and oh, look, I would love a to. a director's cut? I would love to do that. I would love to do the, um, yeah, I'd have to get back into all that footage again. Yeah, that would be great. Hmm. In fact, if truth is if someone let me do that I would bring someone in who could do Roddy McDowell's voice mm-hmm. and I would do the narration because that's all I need is the voice someone who could do his voice so it sounds like him uh-huh. yeah then I then I could make it the way I wanted it hmm. well any chance of that happening? no <laughs> well that's sad no because you know I'd have to go to Warner Brothers and say I want all the footage and Who knows where all that... That was all shot on film. Who knows where all that footage is now? Hmm. Then I have to pay an editorial team to put it to, you know, to start to reassemble it. Mm-hmm. I would... I mean, they're not going to do it. Hmm. So, no, there's no chance of that. The only chance would be is if I had all the material. And, and truth is, I do have all the material on VHS with time code on it. Oh, Okay. But I, you know, but I'm not going. You know, it's because these are the dailies. The dailies with running time code. But I'm not going to take it and do it with that. That would just be messy. Yeah, I see. Well, that's sad because I. Well, I mean, I'm not. not unless, you, unless, you, unless you want to finance that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's if I had the money. Actually, I would do it. It's something I would love to see. So, um, well, if I had the money. Because because all, all all the footage is there. Hmm. So, You, don't, you wouldn't have to shoot anything else. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, did you see the film Down Periscope with Kelsey Grammer? No, I didn't. 
um, it came out a couple of years after after going under. Yeah, <clears throat> and I always felt that um, these people must have watched Going Under because there's a lot of stuff in there which is taken from your movie. Oh, really? Yeah, there's the setup with um, you know an, an, an incompetent captain on a I don't know some sort of wacky mission. And yeah. there's a, a woman on the U-boat who is from some sort of academy, I don't know, but she's in the supervising yeah. position. And then you have a scene with a sort of abyss where they go in and all these sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a funny movie and Kelsey Grammer is very funny, but I still thought that they, they took some inspiration from you. Yeah, well, that's nice. No, I never saw it. I think when it came out, I'd go, I don't want to see it. <laughs> 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 You've had enough of, of submarines. Yeah, I've had enough, yeah. So uh, was that a reason that there was never a second theatrical feature film for you? Yeah, that that sort of put an end to my uh, filmmaking career for a long time. Hmm. Because, that, I mean, that's the Hollywood system. And, <clears throat> you know, you make a film and then people say, oh, okay, you made a film, how did it do? How much money did it, you know, I would get questions from producers. How much money did it make on the first weekend? Mm -hmm. they, they didn't even care about seeing the film. They just say, how much money did it make on the first weekend? Well, it didn't make a lot. Well, okay. Well, then we're not interested in you. Uh -huh. Or they hear that it was a film that basically Warner Brothers put on the shelf, is what they did. I mean, they released it, but that's it. It's mostly released on DVD. I mean, on not even DVDs, just on VHS. Mm -hmm. And You hear that, and it's a major studio, and then they go, okay, it must have been a disaster. We don't hire him, and they, they move on. Yeah. So it, suddenly, you know, for a period of time, like I told you, when I was making the film, and all the reactions to all the, the footage were so, so positive, then, you know, I was getting other scripts were being sent to me and things like that, which was great, but I said, I don't have time to read them. I'll read them later. Uh -huh. After the film was over, suddenly it went quiet. Hmm. So it's all it is. It's true. They, it's all based on what your last film is. Hmm. Would you be interested in doing another comedy? Oh sure, and I've you know I've, I've done I've done a lot of television since then. Mm -hmm. uh, I just did another film a few months ago, short film here, which is a pilot. We'll see what happens with that. I have a couple of other films that um, one's a comedy, not not like that. So I've got two other films I'm looking at doing, hopefully one of them this coming year. Uh -huh. Just a, now it's a matter of raising money. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds good. It's something to look forward to. I've seen that you're um, in Munich quite often, actually, because you're doing workshops there, right? Yeah. I've been going to Munich since 99. That was the first time. I, I go there every year. Uh -huh. I'm traveling all over the world now, teaching. Mm -hmm. Ironically, teaching film directing. But, um, but yeah, I go to Munich. I have a lot of, a lot of friends in Munich, and I do a lot of workshops in Munich. Mm -hmm. Did you learn a lot on Going Under, which you can now use when you teach film or consult films? Oh, yeah, because I made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And because it was my first feature film, but because I went into almost immediately because I couldn't get another film going, I started teaching, and the teaching 
just took off and it's become my main career for many years mm -hmm. lots of times I'll go what am I doing what happened to filmmaking and then I realized what I was really doing unconsciously was teaching myself how to make a better film uh -huh. and so yeah a lot so I've learned a lot from from going under and because of that experience and then the experience of other films that I've worked on where I wasn't the director where I was sometimes a consultant or an acting coach I've learned a lot from those too mm -hmm. so it has affected my teaching a lot and it's affected my directing a lot in mm -hmm. a way I created the best film school at least the best film school for me mm -hmm. which is to go out and try to try to teach everything even teaching things that I don't know that I don't understand mm -hmm. the, you know then the challenge with film directing is there's so much there's so much you really need to know and it's impossible to know all of it yeah. there's, just, there's just no way and it's such a huge complex and actually dangerous job dangerous in that it's very easy to make a mistake you know? <laughs> and then find out in post production when, oh god damn I made a mistake and, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's so easy so easy to mess it up yeah, and there's a lot of money on the line too. Yeah, a lot of money on the line, and it's a wonder that films, any film comes out good, you know, because it's it's so easy to make a bad. It's easy to make a bad film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, no, I've I've learned a lot. It's been good, mm -hmm. and I continue. I continue to learn all the time, and a lot of that is in my book. I don't know if you've seen any of my books. Um, I have them on my Amazon wish list, but I haven't bought them yet. Okay, I have to admit that. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of it I've written in the books too, of what I've learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've read good things about um, the director's bag of tricks. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, every time a discussion comes up on what are the good books uh, a director should read when it comes to you know talking to the actors, and I, I, I see your book all the time on on those lists. Oh, good. Oh, that's nice. I don't know about those lists, but that's nice. I'm glad I'm on there. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's on my wish list, and I'll get around yeah. to it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but did you read uh, John Badham's book, um, yeah. I'll Be in My Trailer? Yep. Yep. It's a yeah. good book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of good advice in there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, John's, John's a, oh, he's a great director, and he's a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. Really nice guy. Well, Mark, I think that about takes care of everything I wanted to know. Um, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk about the movie, even if you say it's basically a painful experience or a painful memory. It's a painful memory. It's not a painful experience to talk yeah. about it. It's a painful memory. No, I, I like talking about it because, as I said, there's a lot of fond memories. I mean, mm. we had a great time shooting the film. Mm-hmm. In post a lot of post production was fun, mm -hmm. but then it got messy. But um, yeah, it was a good experience. I'm glad I had it. Mm -hmm. I suppose that happens on a lot of films where you just don't know it. You know, there there are a lot of films which are where you don't read a lot about them, and um, you know they, they they remain obscure. And if yeah. you if you talk to the people, then they would probably tell you, well, something went wrong with the studio or in post-production or whatever. Yep. Yep. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah the, my story, I'm not the only... <laughs> I mean, I've talked to so many directors who go, oh, yeah, I got a story like that. And I go, oh, great, you know. it's uh, And some of them are worse, really worse than mm-hmm. being fired off the movie halfway through and things like that, you know. It shouldn't happen to anybody, but it happens. It happens a lot. And one thing I want to say, Christian, I really appreciate you and your enthusiasm for the film. I rare, I rarely hear about the film, or rarely anybody talks to me about it. So it was mm-hmm. a pleasure and a delight to uh, talk to somebody who goes, "Oh, I like this film." I go, "Well, thank you." Even though it's not exactly the way I wanted it to be, the fact that it still comes through is, mm-hmm. it's nice. That's that's very gratifying. So I thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thanks, thanks to you mm-hmm. for going through all of it again. <laughs> 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 Well, good luck with the with the new projects. I hope I see something new from you soon. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 